Do you ever notice the same problems repeating in your business again and again? Have you ever tried hiring new employees to help raise the bar, but then it never seems to happen the way you expected it to? Do you ever find that with some people, it seems like the harder you try, the worse things actually get? If any of these situations resonate with you, you need to listen to the Catch Em Keep Em podcast today. Mark and I are talking about how and why these things happen and what you can do to break through and finally change the status quo. Welcome to the Catch Em and Keep Em podcast with Melissa Glennie and Mark Altman. We're here to help you hire, engage, and retain the best talent to help you make your vision a reality. Hi, welcome back to the Catch Em Keep Em podcast. Um, Mark, happy to see you again. I hope you had an awesome Father's Day this past weekend. Melissa, I had a really relaxing Father's Day, and I have to tell you, it's it's really weird because I find that um, as a parent, I'm sure you can relate to this, I find that I'm so used to making decisions for other people first that when that day comes, when, sure you feel like this on Mother's Day, like when that day comes, it's like, wait, this is about me today. What do I do? I don't even know what I want to do. So I actually, I enjoyed it, but I actually find sometimes I struggle knowing how to spend the day because I'm not used to it. <laughs> so weird. Yeah, yeah, I understand. It takes a little time to get going in during, I find on Mother's Day, it's like, it's 11 a.m. and I'm still sitting there. Right, like, right. Like, I don't know, this is really strange. I'm not sure what's, what's exactly. happening here. Exactly. But I will say that my 13-year-old son made me, I love blueberry muffins, and he made me uh, the recipe for Jordan Marsh blueberry muffins. And they're so amazing. So I was like, I was thrilled. That sounds amazing. Yeah, they're and so it, good. Yeah, and I know you love your blueberry muffins. I do. Uh, that <laughs> I do. Mm -hmm. Well, that's great. Um, I'm glad that you had a, a good, uh, well-deserved Father's Day. Um, and, you know, Mark, in terms of what we're talking about today with all this discussion that we've been ha we've been having and i feel like the whole world has been having about the new normal we've had such an overwhelming change and i know that you uh, work so um closely with many so many different companies to help them navigate through change and really examine things for what what's working well what's not working well and and so just this whole concept of love it change it leave it I just feel like you have so much to bring to the table. So I'm excited to dive in and, and talk with you about this. So can you just to kind of set the, the, the stage for us, talk a little bit about um, leadership. I know that, you know, in our discussions, we've, we've touched on passive leadership. Um, and uh, I think there was another assertive, aggressive or yeah. passive aggressive. Right, right. Um, can you just kind of define a little bit? Cause I don't think a lot of people are really aware of, of, uh, what what this all is in any great depth. Well, you know, I'll start on Melissa by just building on what you said. You know, I think part of part of um, being an effective leader is messaging, right? Such a part of an effective leader is messaging. And messaging has a lot of different components to it. But the whole thing about the new normal versus status quo versus change is about reframing information. And, you know, Melissa and I are such believers in mindset um, as far as contributing to your success and happiness. And I think part of where this whole starts about being an effective leader, an effective leader is how you're framing information. And a passive leader is someone who does two things, right? One is 
they avoid actions until mistakes force them into a decision, right? And they also, um, they also ignore problems, right? And so ultimately, one of the biggest things I try to explain to people about the word passive related to assertive and aggressive, as you said, is think about a time in your life, Melissa. Is it fair to say that at some point or another, you have not been assertive and maybe in certain situations, you may have been passive and aggressive. Is that a fair statement? Absolutely. So my rule of thumb for assertive versus passive behavior is you should always be assertive if you can feel confident in how you message. So, and there's four aspects to messaging. One is your word choice, one is your tone, one is your body language, and one is your ability to listen. And so why is that relevant as a leader? Because to not be a passive leader, you have to feel confident to be an assertive leader. And I think that's the starting point, Melissa, is I think people either don't have the requisite skill sets when they become a leader, they are too overwhelmed to even want to deal with the problem, or they give up on people, right? But not necessarily because the person should be given up on, it's because of their experience in other situations that they mirror when they're leading people and they don't want to deal with it, it just becomes too much. So I think ideally, being an assertive leader as opposed to a passive leader is being able to deliver your message in a way where you believe it can be heard and you believe they'll be able to hear it as well. Mm. You know, uh, in, in my reflection on the companies and managers I've worked with for 20 years, what you're saying is so familiar to me and I hear it defined from people who I, now that you're saying this, uh, I can, I recognize it. And um, it's one, so pervasive. And two, I hear it uh, defined from people as, oh, I, I don't want to micromanage. I'm not, I, you know, I don't want to be, you know, dictating to people how to do their thing, right? You know, I want to let them figure it out and this and that. So, you know, it, it seems like sometimes people are coming from a good place with their intentions, but, you know, I guess, do you, do you think people recognize when they're just throwing their hands up? Well, no, and, and I'll give you a very succinct example, Melissa. So there was a company I was working with back in January who the owner of the company complained to me that um, managers of the company, leaders of the company to get something done or accomplished had to CC him on an email. So the receiver of the email would be motivated in fear that his name was on the email chain. And one of the points when I did that leadership training is I said, as a manager, when you try to solve a problem and you feel like you need to resort to getting someone higher than you involved, that is passive leadership. And you may as well hold up a sign saying, I've run out of ideas to motivate this person. So I need to become a passive leader and rely on somebody else. Mm. And I think this is the tricky thing. I, your point's so important, Melissa, because I don't, there's so many examples of passive leadership that may not be seen as passive leadership. Mm -hmm. But what I see is I see so many leaders trying a first or a second or a third time to fix a problem or a person. And then when they throw their hands up in the air and say, I give up and become passive, it doesn't occur to them that the way they've tried to solve the problem has been the exact same way 
all three times. So if it didn't work the first time, why would it work the second and third time? Yeah. You know, I'm, you're making me think about somebody I was with just last week. I went to assist in a termination and um, my heart went out to this business owner when he was telling me how hard he's tried to be kind to the staff. And it just seems like there's one in particular um, who's taking advantage. In all in all, it felt like the tail was wagging the dog um, in the whole, you know, the whole base of employees being the tail. And so, you know, where does that come from? That, you know, that's the leader that created that. We know that. Um, and, and so I'm saying my heart went out to him because totally identify. I've been there. Like this was so parallel to something I'd experienced before. And he, he was giving me an example of how he was trying to be kind. And he said, you know, I stood out in their work area for however many minutes it was to let them finish a conversation, non-work related, um, so that I could ask a, a, a question that was business related. And I could tell he was carrying some resentment about that. And they obviously hadn't noticed, hadn't been grateful for the fact that he was being so gracious. And, um, and I thought, my God, I can't, I can't even, if I could um, have a nickel for every time I've stood around employees waiting for them to finish talking about something that when I was, you know, I, I wanted to say something. Um, it sounds ridiculous, you know, as the leader to say that, no, I, I didn't feel like I, I was, you know, didn't feel like I should interrupt. Um, not, not that we want to interrupt each other, but I think you know where I'm going. Here. Sure. You know, uh, and, and so I thought, my man, that just hit me like that. How would I feel if I was just going along as an employee doing my thing and I'd have no idea that my boss is like billowing up with resentment because I'm chatting with my coworker when she wants to say something to me. I, so I just feel like, wow, I've, I, you know, have failed to communicate once again. <laughs> and, and, you know, now I'm seeing it in this case and, you know, how, how this all snowballs is just so unfortunate and unnecessary. So I think this is so important what you're talking about. Well, Melissa, that, and, and what's, what's really interesting about this is that people choose passive most often because they don't know other choices. They don't think they have any other options. And maybe in some cases that could be true, but you know, I wanna ask you because you know, you're, you're placing leaders for companies, you're putting people in key spots. And I'm just curious, if you pose the question to HR people or hiring managers and things, and you said, hey, do you think you have any leaders here who exhibit passive leadership or passive behavior, do you think they could even properly identify it in a lot of cases? No, no, nobody's talking about this. No. no. So, so, so my point in saying that is that how do you recognize passive leadership? And so one of the challenges that happens, right, is from a top-down mentality, when a C-suite level of an organization um, they might identify these flaws or weaknesses. They don't call passive leadership. It could be not getting the job done. It could be not good performance coaches. It could be a lot of different things. But if they don't actually recognize the problem, what they also don't realize often is that that behavior is often modeled from the top. 
-hmm. And so one of the challenges with passive leadership is where does it come from? Where does the instincts, the habits that create passive leadership come from? And I really, it, it's, it's so funny, Melissa, because you know, our tagline at Mindset Go is developing confident and effective communicators. But every time I say that, I'm like, but people can't connect the dots of what that means. But that's being, being an assertive leader is what, how you develop in a confident and effective communicator. Mm -hmm. And like everything else in the world, we know that emotionally, if we go to one side, it's aggressive. If we go to the other side, it's passive. And we have to find a way to be balanced and stay in the middle. And that concept is very foreign to a lot of people and a lot of organizations. Mm. You know, I think there's something that's even potentially more damaging uh, with passive leadership that's not recognized and addressed. I've known a number of uh, business owners and managers through the years who I see have a passive aggressive leadership style. And, uh, you know, so, you know, passive is one thing, but it seems like if somebody is in a situation where they end up actually being passive aggressive in the way that they're dealing with employees and, you know, trying to get them to do what they want to do in a passive aggressive way versus being assertive as a leader. Um, I mean, is that something that you all, you, um, does that resonate with what you've seen in, in dealing with clients as well? Yeah. And what's interesting is, you know, a lot of companies will trumpet their core values, um, core values of, how they want to treat people. I find most often or very often, those core values are tied to their customers, their external customers, not necessarily their internal customers and how they want to you know, treat their employees. But I don't think there's, I think companies often lack a foundational um, guidelines of how it is that we want our leaders to behave. I mean, wouldn't it shock you if you actually saw an organization that said they had leadership core values? not company core values, leadership core values specifically. And so in what you're talking about, I think it's a challenge because there is no alignment on the kind of behaviors that most leaders should have within an organization. And the first one, Melissa, would be the value of advocating when you need help. I mean, don't we want people to speak up for when they need help? So I don't see it as passive if a leader in an organization says, in the example I gave before about CCing the owner on the email, if a leader says, listen, I have tried what I believe two or three other ways to solve a problem. I need some help. Can I get some guidance? But I still want to own the solution and the result. Mm -hmm. That's not passive leadership. But the problem is we live in a culture where advocating for ourselves and asking for help is frowned on. So yeah. to me, that's the gateway, Melissa, is creating the culture where people can actually speak up if they feel resigned or they feel like they have to give up. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And, and I, I hear what you're saying, you know, when, it, when I think you said a little earlier, it basically comes from the top down um, because I know a lot of situations where leaders, and I think you might have said this before, they're just expected to know how to do what they do. And there's not a lot of opportunity for them unless they're working with somebody specifically on mentoring and coaching, there's really, in a lot of the organizations that I know more intimately, um, they're, they're just kind of there to figure it out. Um, so I, you know, I can understand that if, they're, if they have a passive leader, they're just naturally going to kind of continue to pass that along down the line. 
So. Yeah, and, 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 and the extension of that is what often happens in organizations is if you have a team, if you're managing a team of say eight to 10 people, there could be one or two people on that team that, see, I don't want to say they're bad eggs because it takes two to tangle, right? So yep. who knows where the problem stems from? But if there's one or two people on the team that are struggling, then the question is, does that drain your energy? Does dealing with those people drain your energy, discourage you, bring your confidence down where you don't have the strength to be an assertive leader to the entire team? And when you mentioned on the top of this podcast about the status quo, this is one of the consequences when you, when you accept the status quo and when you can't lead and when you become a passive leader, that if you can't develop or coach or fix, so to speak, the problem people, then it really hampers your ability to not only lead everybody else, but even want to deal with everybody else just because of one or the, one or two of those people. So that's a huge confidence, a huge consequence. Frankly, Melissa, if more companies recognize that consequence, you'd have a lot more business and they wouldn't just take the status quo, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Mark, what you're saying res really resonates with me. Um, I have, when I work with clients, I, I've, my mantra has been for years that you get more of the same and, and my, reason for saying that is to give them a word of warning of be very careful about who you allow into your team because it, it can only take one person to really disrupt a, a, good, um, a good balanced achieving team. Uh, but I think what I've also seen and how this kind of a problem could create one, um, a, a, a turnover issue, and then two, exacerbate bringing more people into the dysfunction uh, who will feed to the dysfunction because while you're as a leader all wrapped up trying to you know put all your attention on the problem child or children those you know good solid employees that could be benefiting from your development and be more engaged are becoming less engaged then they exit and you're left with a hole that you're probably going to end up filling with more people that kind of vibe with the ones that got you into that situation to begin with. So, you know, it's just one of those, I think, problems that just is a, a vicious cycle if you don't really manage yourself getting out of it. it, it that's, such the, that's such a great way to say it, Melissa, vicious cycle, because, you know, when we talked in the beginning about reframing, so what's funny is, you know, we've talked in some past podcasts about this as an opportunity to self-reflect and evaluate. We know a lot of companies have, I'm going to use the term, they probably wouldn't use it, but cleaned house somewhat out of obligation and somewhat out of trying to turn, turn over a new crop of people. And I think that's what's so tricky about this whole status quo and passive leadership is that it really is, if you replace the problem, if you assume the problem is the problem child and you don't address the passive leader, it, it, it just will continue to be a problem. Right. And, you know, when it comes to, when I think of the science that goes into recruiting the right people and adding talent and so on, it's such a, uh, it's, it's such a science to doing it right. And if, 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 imagine, Melissa, you find a company like you do, dream candidates, and they walk in and they call you a few months later and, go, and somehow it's like, well, that person didn't work out. 
it, it probably has nothing to do with you and has almost everything to do with, it could be the culture of the company. It could be that you have a passive leader or an aggressive leader for that matter. So it's just, just to me, recruiting and retention, these concepts are so critical to not sticking with the status quo. And I've seen a lot of studies that a lot of people believe, and I'm interested to see what you, what you, what your knowledge is on this, Melissa, but a lot of people think you should be turning over certain positions and certain employees in set periods of time anyway, just for rejuvenation and just for generational growth and so on and so forth. So, I mean, what are your thoughts on that? And do you see that even happening? Yeah, you know, I think uh, you were just making me think of Patty McCord, who um, I admire her so much. She's the, She was the CHRO of um, uh, Netflix from the early 2000s up through, you know, a few years ago. So she really helped guide this organization through the most massive progress that you can imagine. Um, and from a, uh, a recruiting standpoint, she had a, a, a incredible amount of work cut out for her, you know, finding people who basically didn't exist when they conceptualized of the type of people they needed. Um, and she says that, you know, her methodology around recruiting is that you, you want to have people who are the best at what they do, doing something in your company that is essential to what you need done for as long as you need it. And, you know, this whole idea of loyalty, I think for a long time, people and companies looked at loyalty as, you know, you're not going to be looking for another job or you're not going to be looking to replace me. Great point. And loyalty is we're here to do this together until it's done. Maybe it will never be done. I mean, that kind of scenario might be out there still, but it's very unlikely that someone is going to be in a company for a decade and be in that position where they are the best at what uh, needs to be done for that company in an essential function. Very unlikely. And it's unlikely that that's what, you know, that their, their heart and their journey would keep them there at that company for that long, given the rate of disruption and, and change. Um, so I'm not saying it can't happen and that it might not be a wonderful thing, but I think we all need to be rethinking our whole uh, definition of what loyalty means and, and the necessity of it. I think that's a great point. And it's funny, Melissa, I have, I really struggle with that word, um, even outside of professional uh, surroundings, because it's, it's, it's a broad word that implies a set of expectations, but people have totally different definitions of loyalty. Mm -hmm. and, and it almost fe felt like one of the big, or feels like one of the big transitions going on right now is that it was almost an implied expectation of loyalty where now it's almost like you have to earn loyalty, right? You have to engage the, the employee. You have to motivate them and help them with their passion and purpose. So now you, have, you went from implied to earning it, and that's a huge change. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, I mean, the, the idea of earning it as well, I mean, I, I, I totally appreciate being a platform for people to come and work and grow personally. And, and I could even say personally, I was going to say personally, professionally, whatever, but it all starts with personally, right? You can't really grow professionally if you're not growing personally. So, you know, we just become better human beings and we're better, period. 
Yeah, and I, and I want to bring up, Melissa, you know, one, one other thought on passive leadership I want to add is what I call resigned leadership. And resigned leadership is a branch of passive leadership, and this is how I differentiate it. When you hear someone, if I was to call you up tomorrow and say, oh, Melissa, I was just dealing with the most passive leader, you're immediately going to get a negative stereotype in your head, right? They're, you know, they're, you know, avoiding, they don't want to deal with problems, they have trouble change. But resigned leadership is people that are not necessarily avoiding, not consciously trying to be passive, but they just don't know anything else. They've never been taught anything else. They don't know how to be different. And one of, I think, a real challenge for, you know, we know productivity is always such a hot button for organizations. And when you're evaluating an employee and their productivity and their level of engagement, what percent of that employee's contribution is measured by the relationship they have with their boss and the relationship they have with their team? Mm. So like, you know, if you're reviewing an employee and you're like, okay, well, they've done this, they haven't met this goal, they haven't done this, but we know it's impacted by those other relationships. Mm -hmm. So the resign leader to me is the one that just doesn't have the requisite experience and skill set. And here's what's interesting, Melissa. You know, if you, you know, I was actually talking to a client today about resume review and like what keywords you look on a resume when you're hiring someone. Mm -hmm. And I said, most people, and correct me if I'm wrong, Melissa, because you know way more about this than me, but most people have this confirmation bias when they're looking at a resume, they have a general idea of what they want to see. And once they see it, right, they're like, oh, okay, well, great. But when it comes to like people skills, I hate the word soft, so I'm not going to use soft skills, but people skills, the ability to motivate and communicate, um, you could be a leader for 20 years and never been taught that set of core competencies. Mm -hmm. And so if you see someone as 20 years leadership experience, I think a lot of people are like, oh my God, they've, they've been a leader for so long. They must be great, but not true, right? Yeah. I wish more people, I love what you're saying because I, I wish people would read resumes for the abilities and the, um, the demonstrated results that people um, are exhibiting through the work that they're demonstrating on their, their resume versus um, you know, I'll just give you a silly example, food service. If you, I don't know if you've ever worked in food service, Mark, but I have, and I'll tell you, you know, urgency, um, mm. customer service, dealing with a fire in the kitchen and coming out looking like you were just walking in the park, no big deal. You know, that finesse, like those are the things that I wish people would be reading rather than, you know, flipping burgers or whatever, you know, the, the, ta the tactical aspect, it, it's not relevant. It's well, what it well, takes to do it. Well, so I want to ask you something, Melissa, because I think, and I've been thinking a lot about this coincidentally in the last week. When you look at hard skills, like the skills to do a specific job, and I'm talking about from a secretary or an administrative assistant that's making photocopies or filing papers all the way up to some of the most complex skill sets there is. My thought process is most of, most of the skills you need to do the actual job can be taught. But to your point, what you were just saying is 
how come how come hiring managers and HR people, or maybe they are, and I'm just out of the loop, but how come hiring managers and HR people aren't looking at these things around resiliency, um, coachability, emotional intelligence? Like, why aren't they putting more stock in interviewing candidates in those kinds of things than checking, I can do this, I can do this, I can do this? Yeah, yeah. I, I think that you make a great point because I, I can tell you, People, and I'm sure you know this, you've interviewed enough people in your career, can look phenomenal on paper and in, in an interview just be somebody you were not expecting the least bit. And on the flip, and it happens the, on the flip side. So, you know, that's why, you know, I, I just think that you have to look right and look left and the, at the, you know, 360 degree view of what it takes to do what someone has done not necessarily, you know, the bullet points of what their responsibilities were, because who knows how effective they were. And Melissa, you know what I just thought of? Something so funny. Think about this for a second. How many people, especially younger people, um, trumpet on their res resume, their fluency in Microsoft Office products, right? We see that all the time, right? And I'm thinking to myself, if you were interviewing someone and they said they, had, they, they were living in a cave the last 20 years and never became familiar of any Microsoft Office product, those are so easy to teach. I mean, you could take online classes all day long for that kind of stuff, right? Right, right. Yet, employees or people seeking a job love to trumpet that on their resume as if it's such a differentiator. Right. And some hiring managers put a lot of stock in that when at the end of the day, um, Melissa, can you pause for one second? Okay, so Melissa, check this out. Like, how funny is this? You know, you look at a resume, people talk about Microsoft Office skills, right, as a big differentiator, but those are skills that can easily be taught in short online courses. But for some reason, the job seekers see that as a differentiator, and sometimes hiring people see that as a critical skill set, when at the end of the day, those are easily taught, but the other skills that you're talking about are the ones we should be paying attention to. Oh, absolutely. And I see it a lot too with um, managers that want certain programs within the suite and they're like, oh, this person's only used one. It's like, well, if they speak the language in today's world, you know, it, it's, it's just, um, yeah, it's really short-sighted, I think, to look so hard at those kinds of skills unless there's one exception that I, I would make, and that is if you're hiring somebody on a temporary basis to come in and do a specific job that you don't That's have anyone to train them for, That's true. And then, okay, fine, that makes a lot of sense. But otherwise, if, if it's a long-term uh, player within the team, no need. So Melissa, I know we're almost out of time, but I have one other question for you, and that is, you know, when companies call you, and they're kind of on the fence about, you know, we'd like to make a change, we'd like to make a replacement, we'd like to do, what do you say to them to give them clarity, right? Because I'm sure there's a lot of people who know in their heart they should be doing it, they need to do it, but what are the key factors that you wanna help people realize that may give them clarity to actually not accept the status quo? Mm. So Mark, just to clarify your question, when you say they call and they wanna make a change, are you referring to a change of uh, personnel in their team? Yes. Okay, all right. 
Yeah, so we, uh, we take a, there's actually a few different steps and we start with a triage. Um, in the recruiting world, I'll say one way to, to build a strong reputation as an effective recruiter is number one, choose good clients. So, you know, I, um, I say a triage call because if I hear a, a situation is really broken, uh, I don't recommend that they work with me because they're just going to spend money to hire and end up in the same situation again mm. and again and probably again. So that's a, that's a case where I would recommend they talk with yourself first and then decide if this is the right time to hire. So that's our triage conversation. Interesting. Just understand, is this the right path to go down? And if it is, uh, then what are the pitfalls? The next conversation is really identifying how are we going to do this? What are the pitfalls and how do we make sure that we don't fall into any of those? Um, so, you know, I guess that's, that's the main point that I would want to want to say. And a final thought for me today, Melissa, is what's interesting about this whole concept of status quo and passive leadership is, you know, companies are always big on using metrics and KPIs and setting goals and things like that as they should. Realistically, we need to start having metrics for a unhealthy culture, passive leadership. We need to start knowing how to measure those things because those stem out to so many other important aspects of a company. And I know you and I are big believers in assessments, but I just think it's time we, we, we look a little deeper to understand that the consequences of an unhealthy culture, of passive leadership, um, of passive aggressive leadership, as you said earlier, those are the, the consequences and the cost of that are often unmeasured and should be. Mm, agreed. Mark, um, I have one final question for you too, okay. because I'm thinking about, you know, the hiring managers or the executives who are listening to us today thinking, oh my God, I've got this. It's in my organization. So let's assume I'm a hiring manager and I've just realized this, that I, I've just been a weak leader. I've just been passive. And my earlier example of the team kind of leading the, you, you know, uh, the, the tail wagging the dog analogy. Um, so in that case, what would your advice be to the manager that's realized that this is how they've been going about things and they need to change things? Because I, I see how it can become a power struggle if you suddenly are trying to walk in one day and, and you're no longer the passive leader it could be a little shock to the system, I can imagine. Do you have any advice for people on that? I do. I mean, I think the first thing is that, do you feel like you can confide in somebody in upper management that will actually care enough and listen? So that's the first barrier, right? Is if you have recognized, because that's the hardest part, self-awareness and recognition. So if you've done that, first of all, you're probably 30, 40% of the way home. But I think the advice is this, you know, Invest in yourself. And what I mean by that is a lot of people don't speak up because they don't think anything will be done about it or heard. And my attitude is not only, not only should you speak up because someone might take action, they might really value you enough at, at whatever level you're at in the organization where they might pay for you to have a private coach. And so a lot of people won't even ask because they're like, well, they're not going to pay for that and they're not going to do anything about it. Let them tell you that. Right. You know, it's not brain surgery, but frankly, it actually is because getting your brain 
and getting over that emotional hump of believing someone cares and someone will do anything about it is a different form of brain surgery. Mm -hmm. So I think that's it. And, and at the end of the day, assessments, when I give assessments, our assessments are homegrown and I, my assessments are not for the purpose of grading you or evaluating you based on a score. My assessments are to give you feedback and set up a conversation where I can really try to understand the root cause of why you answered some of the questions, what you did, what are the fears, what are the habits you're struggling to build. And so I think assessments also can be really powerful for that. Mm, excellent. Fantastic. I, I, I think that you've really shared a lot of great value today, Mark. I, I'm, um, I'm really glad we got to have this conversation. Thank you. Yeah. And I think, Melissa, thank you for saying that. And I think that one thing, you know, just to share with our audience that, you know, Melissa and I, one of the reasons we do this podcast is because we see each of our roles in organizational development as going hand in hand. They're so tightly connected that we see both of us as a value together because we're both an active part, whether it's Melissa recruiting, whether it's both of us involved in retention, whether it's me in engagement, whatever, but there's just a, such a tight thing. And it takes a village. I mean, like it takes a village. So, yes. so we just see a lot of synergy when we work with organizations because there's a lot of moving parts. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that wraps it for today, Mark. And I'm looking forward to hearing about all your wonderful adventures next time. All right, me too, <laughs> me too. Me too. No, thanks, thanks. Uh, and yeah, that was great. Awesome. All right, take care. See you next time. Thanks for joining us on the Catch Him and Keep Him podcast. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe so you don't miss us next time. In the meantime, remember that engaging your people is a daily task and recruiting is a process, not an event. If you need help, just ask. Connect directly with Melissa at franklinprofessionals.com and Mark at mindsetgo.com.